Dear Lord God, thank you um, for the opportunity to um, be in this place, worship you in this church, and to learn from you and from Holy Scripture and from the texts of our culture, the different things that are being put out there on film, in books. Um, and so we ask, Lord, would you even use those, um, even though they're not Holy Scripture, even though they're not um, authoritative like your word, yet Use them to draw us to your word and to your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask all of this in his name. Amen. So um, good morning. Uh, good morning to all of you. This is part three, but you don't have to go to all four kind of, of a series. So if you've been tracking, great. If you haven't, welcome. Um, this is the in the first class that I taught, I looked at dystopia. Um, anybody remember what dystopia is from that class? Anybody um, remember how dystopia is different from utopia? Um, utopia is the idealized society when all is perfect and right in the world. You know, I planned my sermon in accordance with this as well. Uh, no, it was based on the lectionary. But, um, but the dystopia is when it's the opposite of a utopia, when... Now, um, not uh, when the world is not right, when we see that things are not right around us. And there's a long history going back um, throughout the ages, even back to the ancient Greeks, of looking at this understanding of how could we create a utopia? Or how is it not possible? Is it possible? Is it not possible? Um, what, what is possible within um, what we're given as human beings, within the way the world is, within the way we are as human beings? And so if we had to dis- define dystopia in terms of the way it's being used today by our culture um, in the fiction that's coming out. A lot of the fiction that's coming out, especially for teens, has this dystopian quality to it. So what does it mean in that context? Well, in that context, when we see dystopia, we could say that a dystopia is, and it's because all of these traits are very often there, a dystopia is a futuristic, controlled, and highly controlling society walled off but barely from chaos so there's an element of control there's an element of um, fear from the chaos that is just barely waiting to erupt and of course in um, in futuristic dystopian novels and usually the chaos does disrupt and there's a way there's a seeking out of a way to overthrow this controlling society this overly controlling society so before i go any further i'm going to show you today's um, particular foray is into the hunger games trilogy which as you might know how many people have read the books they're so good aren't they they're page turners how many have seen any one of the movies? There are two movies that have come out. Okay, good. I happened to catch the second one on, a, on an international flight. I was pleased. I was like, yeah, this is working out. Okay, so I'm going to show you the trailer. This is the trailer for the 2012 film. Oh, no, my bad. Operator error. Hang on. The technology is only as good as the person using it. Hold on. We could do it, you know. Take off, live in the woods. They'd catch us. Well, maybe not. We wouldn't make it five miles. (laughs) 
one courageous young man and woman for the honor of representing District 12 in the 74th Annual Hunger Games. It's your first year, Prim. Your name's only been in there once. They're not going to pick you. That's all they want. There's 24 of us, Gail. Only one comes out. So you're here to make me look pretty. I'm here to help you make an impression. And so it was decreed that each year the 12 districts of Pan Am shall offer up in tribute one young man and woman between the ages of 12 and 18 to be trained in the art of survival and to be prepared to fight to the death. This is the time to show them everything. Make sure they remember you. I just keep wishing I could think of a way to show them that they don't own me. If I'm gonna die, I want to still be me. I just can't afford to think like that. Right. So um, if we had to describe what um, what the dystopia was like in the Hunger Games, we would say a controlling government requires the sacrifice of two children per district who will enter a gladiatorial arena and either kill or be killed on screen for the citizens viewing pleasure. It's heavy. It's hard why a lot of people have started these books, started to read them and said, no, thank you, I, I, can't, I can't read this. And they put them down and said, no, I just can't read it. And it's even more apparent on the screen. Um, there's something about it that makes it even harder, even more horrifying um, when it's on the screen. That's a good thing, actually. And we're going to look at why is that a good thing? Why is that distaste in our mouth good why is that sense of horror good what is how can god use that for us um but before we go through some of that i want to draw your attention to one characteristic in particular that you see all throughout the hunger Games series um in all three of the of the books in the films of course as well the films are really good representations of the books that's not always true and i've told you that about Divergent, which was the um, book and film trilogy that we looked at last week. Don't go see the movies. Read the books instead. They're much better than the movie, in my opinion. Um, but this one, the, the movies are pretty good, pretty accurate to the books. And Jennifer Lawrence is, is compelling. She's a good, good actor, and she's able to carry it. You see in that trailer one of the first moments in the film when, um, when this reaping, as it is called, is it's the day of the reaping. 
and all of the children between the ages of 12 and 18 in each one of the 13 districts of this imaginary country, this imaginary futuristic country, have had their names placed into a bowl. And those who were especially needy, especially hungry, had placed their names in the bowl multiple times so that they could receive enough food to be able to feed their families. This is um, one of the situations that's um, sort of underlying the whole books, which is that in the capital, there is an excess of food, an abundance, um, a, a sinful abundance of food. And in the districts, there is not enough for everyone to eat, and, and there are children starving every day. Um, and so those children have put in their names extra times to be able to help feed their families, and that means, of course, that their odds are higher. The odds are higher that they might be chosen to be in this horrible situation. So, of course, um, the main character, Katniss Everdeen, you see with the long black braid, she has put in her name several times because she's had to feed and support her family following the death of her father in the mines when she was a much younger girl. So there she is. She's put in her name several times, and she has kept her younger sister, her beloved younger sister, who's, do you remember what her sister's name is? You want to tell? Primrose. That's right, Prim. That's why she's screaming Prim, short for Primrose. Her younger sister has been kept from only putting in one, and this is her first year to be eligible. And, of course, what happens is that Primrose Everdeen's name is chosen. And what does Katniss do? But she volunteers in her place to go into this arena to either die or to kill all 23 other children in this arena um, in order to be able to come home and come back to her family. So you see, in Katniss's first major action in the trilogy, she is acting with great courage and great self-sacrifice on behalf of those um, she loves. And so from the very beginning, she's a hero that you want, that you like, that you identify with, that you want to be like. And that courage and self-sacrifice is something we talked about last week in Divergent. It's all throughout Divergent as well. Those books, their main character there, Beatrice, has a lot of courage. You remember what we were talking about, about her courage last week. You saw it, especially in um, the way she would put others in front of herself, before herself, even when she wasn't thinking about it. It was almost like that selflessness was a knee-jerk reaction, an instinct. And yet she herself was aware of how selfish she was at times. And that led her to feel like she wasn't home, even in her own home. And she needed to go leave her home and find a new identity. So anyway, back to Hunger Games. We see courage. We see self-sacrifice. In the first movie, we see it through Katniss's volunteering to go to the arena um, in Primrose's stead, uh, place. And we see it also throughout the second film. I'm going to show you now the second, um, the trailer for the second film called Catching Fire. You understand that whatever I do, it comes back to you and mom. I don't want you to get hurt. Since the last games, something's different. You can see it. What can you see? Who they think she is. She has to be eliminated. 
I agree, but in the right way, the right time. We have to go before they kill us. They will kill us. People want to fight. I'm staying here. They fought very hard in the games, Miss Everdeen. But they were games. Would you like to be in a real war? Imagine thousands of your people dead. Your loved ones. Gone. What do I need to do? This is the 75th year of the Hunger Games. The tributes are to be reaped from the existing pool of victors. I get to say goodbye. So what do we do? I think these games are going to be different. film you see in the second installment that um, I'm not I, there are, I will spoil some things for you if you didn't realize that already but the second trailer spoils a little bit of the first trailer because they survived to be able to make a second movie so there you go they survived I won't tell you how it's worth finding out if you read it yourself um, it's worth finding out exactly how Suzanne Collins helps them survive she's a good writer how many of you read it really quickly I know. I kind of stayed up late reading it really quickly. Um, it, it, it's a page turner, and that's why it's a good beach summer reading, but it's going to make you think. It has made you thought. Obviously, it's made me think. Um, so there in the second movie, in the second book, what you see, they've survived, she and the other main character, Peta. And in this second movie, you see that she is not just trying to stay alive, not just trying to protect her own family, but she now has strategized to protect her friend as well. And so her plan in the second games, the second year in which she finds herself in these games to the death, her strategy is to die to save her friend, to at all costs to keep her friend alive which is very different from her first-year strategy of surviving. And it's a beautiful thing. You see this growth and this maturity even in a 17-year-old. Um, and what has happened, too, is that in this second book, the, um, she herself, the main character, has become the focal point for a rebellion that is beginning to erupt throughout the community, throughout the nation. Um, but still, even so, you see not just this selflessness in Katniss, but you see it in others as well. We're going to talk about that in a little bit um, longer, but there is, throughout this willingness to even die on behalf of other people, you see a fulfillment of what Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples the night before his death as he was about to show them exactly what love means. When we think of love, we use so many different words 
for love. I love chocolate cake, but I also um, really love my family. It's a different kind of love. Um, But Jesus characterizes the love that God has for us um, through his own death. And he points his disciples to this truth in John 15 when he says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his friends, for us. And we see this, this willingness to lay down their lives for each other in this book, in the hearts of these young teens as they're put in very dire circumstances. Um, So that's one characteristic, this um, courage and self-sacrifice is truly beautiful and really has a Christian aspect to it, even though it's not officially Christian, but we can recognize it as Christians for what it is. There's something else, and this is something that goes all the way throughout um, the three books, and it's part of Suzanne Collins, the author's um, mindset, that is uh, a beautiful thing, and and that is that she is um, seeking to counteract something in our own culture today. I said it the last two weeks running that dystopia, because of the futuristic nature It is almost as though the author of dystopian novels or the filmmaker for dystopian films is trying to come back to us today, almost like a prophetic voice from the future speaking to us today, a voice of warning and caution that if we don't change something about the way we are, the way we live, we might just end up like the futuristic society that's depicted in the dystopia. So do you remember that? Do you remember that we talked about that with um, 1984, that great and horrible book by George Orwell that you should never read, that um, has there, he talks about if, if we don't keep erasing our past and changing the past in order to make um, the political leaders of the present seem infallible, then we're going to find ourselves in a place where words don't mean anything anymore, um, where the words, the written word doesn't mean anything, and where, um, where we don't have a tether on what our past is, and then where there is um, no ability to dissent with whoever's in power. So 1984, we see it also in, um, in last week's book series and film series in Divergent. Do you remember what that prophetic voice, anyone who is here or who has read Divergent, do you remember some of the prophetic things? that the author, Veronica Roth, is trying to say to us today through her depiction. Anyone who's here? I'm looking at Sarah. You might remember. Sorry, I'm not. No, I know. Totally put you on the spot. I thought you could handle it. You can handle it, in fact. No, you don't want to? Okay. No one else knows that I'm talking to you, so that's the good news. Um, the, uh, last week, we um, looked at we looked at Divergent. We looked at some of these prophetic things. One of the things in that book are the factions, the very hard and fast, rigid groups defined by one particular particular characteristic and the inability to deal with the nuances of human relationships, the nuances of identity and identifying with multiple things. Um, and then also some other things about control, control in terms of how um, we raise our children, control in terms of how we exist as a society. They were trying to control not just the actions, but also the impulses and thoughts of individuals in that society. So that's divergent. But here in The Hunger Games, what would you say that Suzanne Collins is trying to tell us about? What is she warning us about and saying 
if we don't change this and that about the way we live our lives, we might just end up like the Hunger Games. Any thoughts? Any brave soul want to try me on that? Loving our neighbors. Loving our neighbors? Yeah, absolutely. And in very specific ways, she's pointing out very specific ways in which we fail to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's that as well. And I would even go so so much further as to talk about um, kind of entertainment. So bear with me for a minute. Uh, there's um, a story in my life when I when I graduated from seminary, I had this whole I was in a holding pattern because I'd stalled on ordination. That's a whole different story. So there I was with an MDiv with nothing to do, no job, and I was um, I found a way, I found a way through it, it was fine, the Lord had me in his hand, and I did that internship that I talked about this morning in my sermon at the hospital in Connecticut, and there I was in Connecticut reconnecting with friends and family that I hadn't gotten to be with for several years, it was really very life-giving, very neat, and this one family, I was spending time with them, what do you do when you're spending time relaxing in the middle of the week with no plans, you sit in front of the TV and you watch what's on, right? And um, this particular, the father in the family was really into American Gladiators, which I don't know if anyone has ever watched that. It's so cheesy. But it was on when I was a kid, and then they revived it. And it's this very cheesy show where real-life contestants can go on the show and do feats of strength and battle these professional athletes who are all they're pumped up on steroids. And um, there's this sort of sense of victory uh, for these li- real-life people that they've been able to, um, co- you know, battle these gladiators and win. The title of the show is American Gladiator is what it's called. So you might be able to get where I'm going with it. Um, So the father loved this show, had DVR'd it, and there was one episode that he wanted to watch again. We were watching it again. And um, and my the seven-year-old, seven-year-old boy in the family said, wanted, you know, they'd watched it, and in it, the woman, the real live woman, had gotten injured on TV. That's not supposed to happen on the show, but it happened accidentally, and she was bleeding. And it was visible to the audience and visible to us, uh, the viewers at home. And uh, the father of the family wanted to rewind and watch it again, because it was unusual, I guess. And the seven-year-old boy burst into tears and said, No, Daddy, I don't want to watch it. I can't watch it anymore just was so upset and rightly disturbed by the real-life person who was getting hurt on national TV, even though it was accidental. Um, And the father was calloused against it, and the seven-year-old boy was so tender and so sensitive to it that he was able to say no to watching it in a way that the adult had not been. And it's true of all of us that we are calloused to the violence that we see on TV and on film. And there is a sense in which it's crafted for our entertainment. We know it's fake. I don't know if you've ever seen, I think the one I watched when I was in high school was Terminator 1, 2, 3, right? You see, and it's a shoot 'em up There's something satisfying about it on a certain level. You know that evil is being expunged from the world. It's sure and fast. It's gone. There's a clearness about that. But, um, but it's also very staged, and we know it while we're watching it. A part of us knows it's staged violence. So that's good. Um, but in recent years, there's been a tendency in film to show violence that is, um, that's still staged, thank goodness. It's not real on film, but that it, it's made to look more real. 
How many of you have seen Hotel Rwanda? It's, it's not for the weak or faint of heart. It is sobering. It is horrifying. It is terrifying. And the reason why it's terrifying is because it's real. It happens. That massacre happened in Rwanda in our lifetimes, even in my lifetime as a younger person in the room. And so it's hard to watch it. And the filmmakers did that intentionally to have the violence be painful for us so that we are um, aware of what's going on in the world, aware of what violence really looks like. Because the truth is that violence is horrifying. Violence leaves indelible scars on the people whose lives it touches. And so, again, the violence in Hunger Games is a reason why people have rightfully avoided the films. But Collins's point is that this kind of violence, the kind of violence she's talking about with these children in this gladiatorial arena, the horror there is real. It has been a very real part of human history, and she's very consciously alluding back to Rome. And then the entertainment aspect is a factor of our life in the U.S. now. And she is trying to tell us it's dangerous for our future. So when we see this, this going back to this Roman influence, how is Suzanne Collins influenced by Roman history and um, the Roman Empire? What was a reality there? Well, she puts forward in her film many different things that point to this. First of all, the name of the country. Anybody remember the name of the country in the Hunger Games? If you've read it, anybody want to shout it out? Panem. Panem. Do you know what it stands for? Bread. Bread. In, someone took their Latin. I, unfortunately, did not get to take Latin, so I won't even try to say the second word. But in her third book, she consciously points out that Panem, she has chosen, like, she, we, she is, it's almost as though she's saying to us, do you see now why I chose this name as the name of my imaginary country? And there is a character who references ancient Rome, references one of the writers in ancient Rome, uh, Juvenal, I think, said that bread and circus is how the Roman leadership kept the masses passive and calm so that there would not be any uprising to their uh, leadership. And so you see it, um, the writer says that in return for full bellies and entertainment, the people of Rome had given up their political responsibilities and therefore their power. And this character in Mockingjay, the third book, points out that this is exactly what has happened in the capital, in Suzanne Collins' imaginary world. And it's true. You see in the second book, there's a victory tour, and Peta and Katniss um, end up in this big party. They go through all of the, the districts, and in the districts there cheered and that it's really the capital's way of saying um, really if you keep on if you rebel we will keep on um, putting you down in this way we are stealing your children as a reminder that you should never ever rebel against our power again but then when they get um, all the way into the capital there there's a big party and they are disgusted because someone at the party tells them to take a little drink of something that will make them vomit so that they can then continue to taste all the food at the party. And one of the, person, one of the people who encourages them to take this drink says, oh, I've already had three, so that they could 
feast uh, in such a luxurious way. And Peter says, here in the capital, they're vomiting for the pleasure of filling their bodies, uh, their bellies again and again. He's disgusted because their children starving back home. And there in the abundance of food, there's also, there's the penem part, that abundance of food in the capital so that the people of the capital um, will succumb to the power of the totalitarian leadership represented by President Snow. But you see also the circus part is in the arena, right? So the Hunger Games serve the purpose of keeping down the districts, reminding the rebels that they um, should never dare to rebel against Penem. But then it also serves to entertain each one of um, the people in the capital. They are entertained by the violence that they see. All of the Hunger Games are televised. And they root for different victors. That's why Katniss gets so popular. Um, and in that moment, in those moments, we see that um, it, it, it's hard to watch. It's hard to realize this is me too. Um, and going back to Rome, that bread and circus part, we know that the um, circus part was the gladiatorial arena, right? It was right there. You can see the Colosseum still today in Rome. There, um, the slaves, those conquered peoples of the Roman Empire would be brought in to fight to the deaths for the viewing pleasure of the masses in Rome as a way of appeasing the masses and reminding the rebels that rebellion was a really bad idea. So Suzanne Collins, she is consciously pointing us back to human history, back to the Roman Empire. She's also pointing to us today in, the, in North America. She's pointing to um, our abundance, our abundance of food and our obsession with entertainment. Um, there's, um, there's entertainment in all sorts of forms all around us. So there is this sense in which the violence is horrifying. The violence is something that's caused by this forgetting of what the past was like and this numbing of the masses through bread and circus, through food abundantly and entertainment. Um, so the violence is there, and the whole point of this is to draw the attention back to ourselves. I'm going to show you now a scene from... a completely different movie, which maybe I shouldn't show you, but there, it's called V for Vendetta, and I, if you're a teen, don't go see it. It's probably not good for you. Uh, or especially if you're a younger teen, later you can see it. Um, but there's one scene in this dystopian England, and I referenced this during my first class, where this one rebel has commandeered the entertainment of the whole nation. He's gotten all the screens in the country, and he's put in his own disc to show his own message to the whole country. And here's what he says. Notice, too, the, um, the, the unity phrases below the big screen in London, almost like Times Square. Dad, what's wrong with the telly? Good evening, London. Allow me first to apologize for this emergency channel. I do, like many of you, appreciate the comforts of everyday routine, the security, the familiar, the tranquility, repetition, but enjoy them as much as any bloke. But in a spirit of commemoration, whereby those important events of the past, 
usually associated with someone's death or the end of some awful bloody struggle, as celebrated with a nice holiday. I thought we could mark this November the 5th, a day that is sadly no longer remembered, by taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Let me think. Just let me I think. Expect, even now, orders are being shouted into telephones, and men with guns will soon be on their way. It's chances that... Damn it! Why? Because while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words are for the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. And the truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? You designed it, sir. You wanted it foolproof. You told me every television in London. Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression. And where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have sensors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and suppressing your submission. We need cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic you turned to the now High Chancellor Adam Sutler. He promised you order, he promised you peace, and all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent. Inspector, you're almost through. Last night I sought to end that silence. Last night I destroyed the old Bailey to remind this country of what it has forgotten. More than 400 years ago, a great citizen wished to embed the 5th of November forever in our memory. His hope was to remind the world that fairness, justice, and freedom are more than words. They are perspectives. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me one year from tonight, outside the gates of Parliament, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. So you see there, um, if you could hear it, some of you might not have been able to hear it, there is one thing that he says, who is responsible for this? And what does he say? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. And that is essentially what Suzanne Collins is saying through her films. She's encouraging us to look in the mirror, to see the ways that we might be lulled. The abundance in our country is a beautiful thing. Praise God for it, that there is so much that we are able to experience and to enjoy. The danger is that, um, that we will be anesthetized into not being aware of need around us, whether it's nearby or far away, um, that we would not be aware of some of the things going on in the world, which we need to be aware of as Christians. Um, and so one of the writers from Mockingbird that I really appreciate by the name of Will McDavid talks about godly sorrow and says that the Hunger Games creates in us a godly sorrow. And that's a quote, a direct a phrase from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is talking to the Corinthians, um, saying that 
He has grieved them because he chastised them in another letter. So he says, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. The godly grief brings about repentance. And the way that Suzanne Collins so beautifully creates godly grief is she ensnares us. She ensnares us into being wildly entertained by her wildly entertaining books. The parts where they're in the arena are the most, the fast-paced part of her books. They're the page-turning parts because you're rooting for the main character. And I've found that while I'm reading those parts, I'm realizing I am a member of the Capitol. I am being entertained by the Hunger Games. Woe to me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from being fed and entertained to death? Who will deliver me from being unaware of need around me? Well, only Jesus, right? We know the answer. It just comes, comes around every time. When we have our passion play, whenever there's a passion play or a good um, during Holy Week, when we on Palm Sunday um, read aloud the passion narrative, we as the congregation play the crowd crying out, crucify him. That violence is within us. Jesus talks about violence being not so much outward action, yes, outward action, but even the anger in our hearts that leads towards us. And then there's also the passivity against um, the violence that we see in the world. Well, Jesus took upon himself the worst imaginable kind of violence himself. that we could possibly imagine that has ever been in all the world. And by it, by going to the cross, Jesus has unseated the ruler of this world, that ruler of this world, Satan, who delights in violence. And he has orchestrated the forgiveness of our own violent hearts. So for that, we can say thanks be to God. Any questions? Uh, it seems like in Roman times, when things got real peaceful, the gladiator games would heat up. Isn't that true? Yeah, just true. to keep the masses. You might be right on that. I read this recently in the Incredible Christians. The other thing, the human nature and the human race has had the ability to overcome great many problems. You know, the, uh, they came out of the Dark Ages. Took them some time. I guess they could come out of this eventually. <laughs> Well, through, through the grace of Jesus Christ, we will one day be transformed. And that's the beautiful thing about Scripture. The utopia is at the very end. The utopia is something we look forward to um, when that city of God, the new Jerusalem, will descend to earth. Then all will be well by the grace of God. There's one up here. Dave. I haven't seen the movies, but you have, and I think I understand what, you're, uh, what, what they're about. But my question is this. You've seen it. What is your guess? With, will most of the people who see that movie be entertained, or will they see in that movie themselves? 
There's hope. I mean, I have hope that she she is a great artist. That's the thing about great art um, is that it can at times get in there and it gets in our brains and this has been wildly consumed. So it's in a lot of people's brains and once it's in there, um, God can really use it, I think. And so I do think God will use this for people um, to show them that. Um, even as young as people are reading it, it still is effective. In the movies, I refrained, I restrained myself from showing a clip, but you can find it on YouTube. It's of the first few moments in the arena in the first movie, and it's horrifying. The violence in that moment is not Hollywood violence, even though it is Hollywood, but it is made to look as realistic as the violence in Hotel Rwanda, and it's sobering. It is horrifying. This is not billed as a horror movie. But it is a horror movie in that sense, that you see it for what it really is. And so I think even in our imaginations while we read the books, we can kind of soften it. But the movies, I do think, bring it out. So thank you. Well, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.